0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to what is the last of the Thinker's Guide to the 21st Century series panels for this year. And it's the big one. It's globalization. I want to welcome you all on behalf of Sydney Ideas and Meredith Hall up the back, who's uh, helped organize this, and the Laureate Research Program in International History, uh, which is a program I run. I'm Professor Glenda Sluga. I'm in the history department uh, when I'm not running this program uh, and as part of it. And uh, we always like to begin by acknowledging that Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation, on whose land this university is built. And, in fact, uh, on that basis, I think of the wonderful legacy that the university is leading as an important social, cultural, and increasingly economically powerful, um, I imagine one could think of it, uh, institution in our wonderful city. So, in the Laureate Programme, uh, we're particularly interested in globalisation and the origins of globalisation uh, as part of understanding the international past. And I was uh, captivated um, in, uh, earlier this year when I was thinking about, you know, what would we have panels on? Because I thought, you know, we, everything seems to be changing so fast, everybody wants a handle on what's going on. And globalisation was one of those words or, and is still one of those words that is everywhere um, and seems to be the handle that people use to get a grip on what's happening. There's no word, I think, with more purchase in present political discuss- discussions than globalisation. But what it means and why it's so important is up for grabs. Now, I've got this um, graph up here. I just took that off. It's from the Harvard Business Review, and it's part of a, an article on you know, what is happening with globalisation. And this is produced by what's called the Biennial DHL Global Connectedness Index, which tracks international flows of trade, capital, information, and people. And this graph is meant to show exactly what the title there says, that globalisation has not gone into reverse, right? So take, you know, we were talking earlier about this with um, uh, with the panel and about how they get their information in their categories, I don't know. But I found interesting another graph that's part of this website, if you want to have a look, and it relates to the sentence that starts at the bottom there that they call the nosedive in the rhetoric uh, around globalisation in the United States and in other advanced economies, which you know fits here as well. So they have another graph, and it's called the sentiment score, and that one uh, measures what they call the only gap between the actual extent of globalisation, what they call the depth and breadth of globalisation, and people's perceptions of globalisation. And that people's perceptions assume a much more extreme depth and breadth of globalisation than is actually the case. So in general, I think, uh, globalisation is one of those words that we use a lot, but each of us might also mean something different by it. Some people identify it with a good thing, others see it as bad, and therein, according to some political commentators, lies the rift in contemporary politics, explaining a Trump election here and a Brexit referendum there. Some see it as inevitable, like a law of gravity, as has been said, or, in fact, as a conspiracy. And there's a question around whether you might think of it simply as about free trade, on the argument that free trade is the answer to the world's ills, the idea, um, as Columbia University economist Jagdish Bhagwati put it in his book In Defence of Globalisation, that freer trade is associated with higher growth and higher growth is associated with reduced poverty. For some, globalisation is associated with the view view uh, that free trade creates jobs then, but for others it's about the depression in jobs. And the demise of industrialisation. Danny Roderick, a Harvard economist, talks about globalisation gone too far. And I think it also depends on whether you look at the everyday implications of globalisation or the implications for international investors, which is a kind of differentiation that occurs in um, this article as well. And whether or not you think free trade is merely an argument for the free movement of multinational corporation money into tax havens. The French populist far-right leader Marine Le Pen talks about rampant globalisation in the way that we once referred to rampant nationalism. So, And this raises one of the questions that we will address tonight, whether or not globalisation is the opposite of nationalism, whether it's good for nations, or whether we need, in fact, to differentiate between nativism and nation-states the way in which we might want to... globalisation and global governance. But there might be different kinds of national politics that aren't always about nationalism or nativism. And there might be different kinds of globalisation that aren't always about trade or um, multinationals. But it might be about global governance. And global governance might be good for the environment in ways that globalisation might not be. So passing our ideas. Um, so these are some of the questions that we're we going to range around and come back to. And I'm very excited, because, both because I have my good colleague Thomas Adams on this panel, who's a wonderful labor historian, but also because we have an economist. We have to go over and squirrel them out of the building on the other side of City Road, where they are in Merryweather, doing their amazing work and actually bring them over here and entice them over here with the possibility of having a really interesting, engaged discussion. And I'm very pleased that the person we've enticed is Professor John Ramalis, uh, because he is also one of those rarer figures around the place, which is an international economist. Harder to find you, you know? There's only a few of us here. Yeah. So John is a scholar of international economics who got his PhD in economics at MIT then he 's also actually can I tell them he 's from Campbelltown originally, though
1: <laughs> so, so from
0: Campbelltown to MIT, back to Sydney via the University of Chicago, where he um, was a member of the faculty there from two thousand and one. he has also served as a resident scholar for the International Monetary Fund. Is that a good or bad organization <laughs> he 's been a faculty <laughs> Did anyone see Christine Lagarde in Sydney last year, I think it was, over at the Seymour Centre, we had on? She was fabulous. I became an IMF fan because I heard her speak, anyway. Um, He's been a faculty research fellow for the National Bureau of Economic Research. I'm going to spend most of the evening talking about his CV. In 2013, John uh, moved to the University of Sydney, where he was appointed the Sir Herman Black Chair of Economics. And in 2016, the Australian Research Council uh, awarded him a future fellowship. They much desire these fellowships. He has published well-known papers on the determinants of international trade, the effects of the global recession on trade, and on the economic effects of tax and trade policy. He has two main uh, current lines of research, studying the production, trade, and welfare implications of tariff reductions since the Uruguay round of trade negotiations, and a second line, on the effects of China's World Trade Organization entry on prices in other countries. So we've got lots of questions coming up for John. Our second speaker, as I said, is my colleague, Dr. Thomas Adams. He's a lecturer in history and American studies. He's an incoming academic director of the U.S. Studies Center. So John, uh, sorry, Thomas is an historian of American social, cultural, and political life with a particular interest in understanding how various kinds of inequality have been produced and at times overcome. And this this is an interest that all three of us have. To that um, end, his research focuses on labor, political economy, social movements, and contentious politics, and particularly in the context of the United States. He uh, is also a uh, Chicago alumnus, uh, having received his, well, actually, John worked there. Thomas got his PhD there and has been an Andrew Mellon and American Council of Learned Societies Fellow. And he will be Distinguished Professor of Anglophone Studies at the University of Paris, Nanterre uh, uh, this year, in the next two months, and then next year uh, in Berlin. Thomas and uh, John, as I said, share this background at the University of Chicago. We may go there and talk about that uh, if we have time at the end. (laughs) But right now, I'm going to start uh, by asking John the question, how does an international economist think about globalisation?
1: OK. Thank you very much, Glenda. Uh, and actually, to help my presentation, I think I'll bring up some uh, slides. So, uh, so I'll just go over there very briefly.
0: Uh, you know, I never studied economics at university, so I feel very privileged. It's like I get a, uh, a free lecture.
1: OK. So now I've got that working. Um, So I'm going to talk a little bit about how economists think about uh, uh, globalization and economists think in terms of various types of economic linkages between uh, countries. Uh, And so um, one example of a linkage between countries, uh, what an economist will think of as production linkages. So you might have read in uh, media studies about global supply chains and the greater extension of global supply chains throughout countries. Essentially, this is just a special example of a uh, a production linkage and essentially a production linkage is just when a firm either gets uh, inputs from another country or sells its output as uh, as an input for some other firm to use in a, in another country so to kind of illustrate uh, production linkages and, um, and t- see the kind of measure the uh, extent of globalization with respect to these linkages i thought i'd use a uh, small, uh, an example of a country austria very small country in the middle of Europe, uh, given that some of the talk today might be about the European uh, Union, I thought it would be a, a useful uh, example, and given they had an interesting election recently where um, sort of, uh, some certain uh, rather uh, relatively extreme politicians were elected, I thought it was also an interesting example, uh, <coughs> example to use. Now Austria is very small, it's only 0.5% of the world economy. And therefore, if an economist was thinking in terms of globalization, in a truly global economy, people would tend to purchase only about 0.5% of their goods from Austria, since that's its share in the world economy. But if you actually have a look at what Austrians actually do, and I'm not going to test you on this data, so just just think about the broad sweep of it instead, is that actually Austrians spend a very large... or their firms spend a very large fraction of their purchases actually on goods produced in Austria. So even though Austria is only one-two hundredth of the world economy, when you're looking to what their firms actually purchase from other firms, nearly 50% of those purchases on average... Uh, are actually from other Austrian firms. And this is actually in the sectors of the economy that are most global. This is kind of trade uh, goods production. If you actually to look at services, which were a larger share of the Austrian economy, you'd actually find that those were actually less global. So this is going to be part of a uh, message is that is the world is much less global than people assume it to be. And the transactions are still predominantly fairly local. Um, and uh, no matter how we tend to measure linkages, this is something that will come out to be true. So even if the goods aren't being purchased uh, from, uh, from Austria, I thought I'd just do some calculations as to, well, are the firms purchase- what other countries are the firms purchasing them from? But it turns out if you're, not purchasing- if you're an Austrian firm not purchasing from Austria, you're normally purchasing from a surrounding country. So, essentially, purchases from the uh, rest of the European Union basically uh, bring up the, the typical, sort of now regional purchases, to close to 90% of, um, of uh, Austrian firm purchases. So, in some sense, even when economies aren't global, um, they're either local or at, uh, uh, or at uh, worst uh, regional in that sense. So, these linkages between firms is something that economists would very much uh, focus on. And just out of interest, this thing here, you might have noticed EORA. That's the EORA nation. This database that I'm using was actually constructed by uh, mathematicians and engineers at the University of Sydney for the purpose of studying climate change. That, I guess, is global. Um, so um, so uh, production linkages are just one thing. Uh, another thing economists will look, look at is, well, where do consumers or uh, purchase their uh, products from? It's so when you go and buy your goods and services, uh, where are those goods and services ultimately sourced from? Well, it turns out that um, Austrian consumers also predominantly pr- purchase goods that are produced in Austria... So, in the typical manufacturing or agricultural industry, roughly half of the purchases of, a, uh, of Austrian consumers are actually on goods and services or goods produced in that economy that, on average, only produces one half a percent of the world's goods. Now, there's some industries where that number is much lower. Those tend to be industries where there are enormous economies of scale, so think motor vehicle manufacturing, the thing we no longer do here, Uh, or where there are enormous disparities in the costs of uh, producing goods between countries, and uh, textiles and apparel are one of the uh, uh, sort of key areas where that's actually true. So, again, just doing my broader comparison, even for those industries where Austrians purchase very few of their goods from Austria, the vast bulk of them are still coming relatively locally. So it's, very, it's just not right, I think, in general, to refer to a global economy. At um, best, we're talking about regional economies in most, uh, in most cases. So um, that's my sort of uh, data on uh, consumption linkages. Uh, you don't have to remember this definition, um, but another thing economists look at are investment linkages between firms. So essentially, this is getting to the story about capital mobility and um, the, the ability to own uh, productive uh, assets across countries. So essentially, the main thing economists, main thing international economists look at is actually a thing called foreign direct investment, uh, and that's where you actually gain an ownership... Sorry, it's kind of a managerial stake, effectively, in a foreign uh, enterprise. Now, there are other types of investment, things like portfolio investments and things like investments in short-term uh, like financial assets, but uh, international economists—well, my type of international economist mostly focuses on foreign direct uh, uh, foreign direct investment, which is where you get some sort of controlling interest in the uh, in the company. So here you'll see all sorts of big numbers uh, uh, um, uh, sloshed around. So if you have to look in the data, in 2016, um, Austria was actually host to 200 US billion dollars worth of inward foreign investment. That is, non Austrian entities owning $200 billion worth of Austrian enterprises. However, on the flip side of that, Austrian entities owned $216 billion of other people's, other countries' enterprises. So these look like very large numbers, but they're actually not very large numbers. One way that people will make them look large is actually by dividing this stock of assets by the income of an economy in a year, which is a flow concept. And they come up with numbers so that roughly half of the Austrian economy, or well, foreign direct investments, roughly half of the Austrian economy. But that's actually not a good way of uh, measuring globalization of uh, capital, because if you actually divide foreign direct investment by, say, the capital stock of Austria, uh, then you'll actually find that it's about 10% of its capital stock. Uh, and actually, if you measured the actual value of all Austrian assets, Foreign investment is a much smaller fraction of the total value of Austrian assets. Okay. So investment linkages are another thing that economists uh, will, uh, will think about. Oh, sorry. I need to use the clicker. Um, so that's the, the last two points that's made. Uh, other things economists will think about are uh, migration. Um, these are things that uh, don't actually occupy much of my time, so I won't talk about them very much. Uh, but essentially, Austria, um, almost 20% of its population is foreign-born, and about half of that actually comes from outside of the European Union. So populations are still, in most countries, uh, quite local, and by European Union standards, Austria actually has a very large foreign-born population. So in terms of data, that's what economists think about it. Um, but in terms of, well, why do we think about it? That's because uh, we think that globalization actually leads to gains for most people. So um, production linkages lead to gains. Reason being, when firms can access uh, products produced by firms all over the world, it uh, raises their productivity and lowers their costs. And therefore, this increases the quantity of goods and services that uh, firms can produce um, per person that they actually employ. Uh, Consumption linkages actually matter, because when consumers can purchase goods from all over the world, that basically lowers their costs of satisfying their needs. Because maybe they can purchase the car from uh, Korea more cheaply than they can purchase the uh, Holden from uh, Adelaide. Um, So essentially uh, consumption linkages basically mean that uh, consumers will just buy the best value propositions. Uh, Investment linkages are important too. And the way economists tend to think about them is in terms of the transfer of ideas. uh, Particularly in terms of foreign direct investment. Because essentially, when their investment linkages facilitates those transfers, because a lot of knowledge transfers, are, uh, a lot of knowledge is one of two types. It's actually tacit knowledge that can't be codified easily and therefore is very hard to transfer unless you have a very invest a lot of resources to try and do that. Or it's highly proprietary in nature, protected by intellectual property laws, and you will not share it freely unless you have a stake in the company that's buying it. So investment linkages facilitate technology transfer, raising the productivity of firms. And those three sets of linkages above there lead to higher average income per person. And given that economies are still mostly local, we think there's a lot more gains potentially to be had. So that's, oh sorry, after asking for this clicker for so much, uh, so long, um, basically those are the points I just made there. Um, I'll I'll get better at this. So, But it's average incomes are obviously not, um, not all of the story. So essentially, economists are concerned. Maybe I was pressing the it, but it's just not registering it. Um, um, a lot of people are obviously concerned about the distribution of uh, income. Um, and essentially, uh, um, for a long time, economists have realised that globalisation can affect the distribution of uh, income. Uh, economists tend to support policies that potentially can make everybody better off. Even knowing full well that the policy makers won't enact the uh, redistribution to actually compensate the losers, right? So economists say, well, if this policy can make everybody better off in theory, then we'll tend to support it. Okay, so um, that's what economists. So this is partly what gives economists a bad name, I think. Um, and also, uh, but we also study inequality a lot. Um, there's been a long history of study of it. Uh, studied a lot in the theory, and in theory, well. Whether it increases inequality depends very much on the situation being examined. So we can't actually, without giving you more information, we can't say, does globalization increase inequality? Uh, In practice, the evidence is ambiguous as well. Uh, There tends to be increases in inequality in richer countries, uh, but uh, often reductions in inequality in poorer countries. So the evidence is inherently uh, ambiguous. So essentially, it really depends on, that's not up at all, see what's going on here it very much depends on how you want to think about inequality uh, and there's actually one graph that I'd like to bring up so that's why I would uh, I'm trying to rescue this uh, presentation um, let me just do it from the lectern that's easier um, so this is a graph that came out some years a few years ago about looking at the world income distribution and it's a very nice summary of what's happened to, uh, in one sense to inequality on a global scale so in this axis here we're just measuring well Imagine back in um, 1988, where in the income distribution you were. So this is obviously the part uh, most people would like to be, and this is the part you very much don't want to be. And then on this axis, it's measuring, well, what was the growth in your real, of the real income of people in this percentile over those 30 years? And what you can see is that a lot of the strongest growth worldwide, this is a worldwide graph, a lot of the strongest growth is actually in the lower income parts of the world population. And that's actually been driven primarily by the growth in, say, China and India, bringing some very low income people further and raising the incomes of some very poor people in the world. Now, the very high income earners everywhere have tended to get better off. But people down here haven't got better off systematically and in many countries have got worse off. Who are these people? lower to middle income people in the wealthy countries. And so if you think think just in terms of a wealthy country, yes, there's been an increase in inequality, because you're focusing on this part of the world income distribution, but if you think about globally, it's not clear that there's been a global increase in inequality. So essentially, the economic arguments for globalization could easily generate uh, results like because globalisation when you decrease trade barriers, it should make it easier for rich people to purchase goods and services produced by some of the poorest people in the world. But at the same time, that reduces the amount of their income they're going to spend on the goods and services produced by the regular workers in the rich countries. So the, the inequality story from a global level can look quite different from what it does at a national level. The national level often uh, matters, so um, I won't uh, go into details of that, so that's, I think I've more than uh, used my allotted no, time. Um, okay, we'll go in a little bit. Of, um, so, at a national level, the story is often quite different. Uh, we're studying this a lot in economics in terms of how the increase in globalization affected uh, workers in different countries, and we've particularly found, especially since the recent growth in China that the workers whose industries were most exposed in rich countries to that growth in in output and trade from China have, in fact, tended to lose their jobs and to lose wages when they've moved to other jobs. So thinking about inequality at a national level is actually actually important. Uh, The other thing, though, is that using exact same statistical procedures, which are much more complex than just looking at this graph, so actually, you can show that what's going on with uh, globalization in rich countries is actually helping to produce polarization, political polarization. That's not my area of research. I think I'll, I'll leave this for Thomas. Um, and um, and also, um, we would like to think about well, why does it work this way? So one is as it depresses demand for uh, workers in rich countries. How else does it work? It reallocates resources from less productive firms to more productive firms. That's essentially what globalization does. More productive firms tend to employ high-skilled workers and also to very generously reward their senior management. Therefore, that's a mechanism for increasing inequality. International trade tends to be disproportionately in higher-quality goods because there's no point paying large costs to shift low-quality goods long distances. Um, and also something that we should think more about um, is uh, thinking about well, globalization tends to create larger markets and larger firms that 's going to shift their incentives to invest in new technologies, and those things will have long term ramifications for inequality and that 's how economists like to think of things
0: <coughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. can I just ask you one follow up question so um, i know people often uh who aren't from austria or australia confuse the two but um (laughs) can i ask you to just uh say does you know australia fit the picture you've uh, uh, painted of austria in the sense of the conclusions that you reach or is it anomalous
1: no australia there's some similarities um australian purchases are also disproportionately local uh, but that's, um, that's partly a feature of our, our remote geography. Uh, the one difference about Australia is that our local, our trade is less regional than Austria. We don't have a European Union around us, right? So if we're not trading locally, we're trading with something very far away. In that sense, Australia is unique because we're kind of the end of the world, right? right. So, uh, but in terms of the broad economic forces, it's similar. Um, I'm actually getting my students to study things similar to that study of US workers. uh, And those effects are not present for Australia, uh, or very weakly present. The main reason being the manufacturing industries were mostly gone a long time ago. And also, unlike for the US, uh, China has actually helped increase demand for certain of our products that are also produced by relatively unskilled workers, so mining output, for example and agriculture. So China, hasn't, China has not had a slightly different effect on Australia than on other wealthy countries. But in other respects, the story is broadly the same. OK,
0: interesting. Fascinating. Thank you. Well, I think um, we've really created a space here for you to step in, Thomas, yeah, and okay. kind of give some, colour in the picture a little bit more.
2: OK, great. So just you know, in responding to kind of Glenda's um, initial prompt about how historians think about globalization, I want to, I mean, I want to give a kind of really brief overview and then actually move into a slightly different um, analysis, um, which is going to be a lot more, whether for good or for bad, argumentative than John's um, excellent, excellent presentation. Um, so, I mean, look, globalization. Um, I've come to study this to some degree or another, having actually. Written a little bit on the guy who actually founds the term globalization. It's a guy named Theodore Levitt, who was a Harvard business economist in the early 80s. And um, Levitt had a very specific definition of globalization for him. It essentially meant um, a shift in corporate strategy from the multinational corporation to the global corporation. He didn't want it to be a catch all phrase. In fact, up until his death in 2009, he was very adamant that the phrase um, not be used to basically describe anything other than that kind of corporate firm strategy he was talking about. Um, And historians, I mean, Levitt was a particularly cantankerous individual. I've come to really like him a lot. Um, And historians like Levitt are also very cantankerous in this regard, right? I mean, we tend not to like people asserting things are new. And the general rhetoric around globalization has often been an assertion of the newness, right? And I'll come back to Tom Friedman and the kind of classic middlebrow notion of globalization in a minute. But, you know, historical work long before globalization was even popularized, um, but especially kind of in reference and as a kind of boogeyman reference to that term has often again used it in a kind of introduction to say global these things that we're seeing now are in fact the same in say the 15th century mediterranean right the 17th century atlantic world the 18th century indian ocean basin um, the height of late 19th century industrial liberalism right all these are kind of moments where we can see whether it's a globalization of finance the kind of relative difference between say the telegraph in the mid-19th century in terms of flow of information um, to the post-telegraph, that is, and the relative difference, say, from the internet to the fax machine is in fact a higher relative difference, right? So that's where historians come in, um, in regards to a lot of this stuff, which is to say, a lot of it's not new, and the focus on its, on its newness tends to then obscure um, what's causing it. But my other concern with the term, besides I think it's ahistoricity, a um, is what I would kind of classify as, say, it's indeterminacy, especially in relationship um, to contemporary politics. Um, so I was just kind of realizing that a little less than a year ago, um, or a little more than a year, a little less than a year ago, I found myself in a conference in a hotel room in the um, Tampa Bay area of Florida. Um, for those of you guys who know, Tampa Bay is one of, it's pretty much the kind of swing metropolitan area and one of the key American swing states, and I noticed on the local news that evening that the next day um, Donald Trump would be speaking at the fairgrounds um, not too far from me. So... You know, as one does when the circus is in town, I, went, um, I decided to go and watch, you know, the elephants and the dancing bears, um, proverbially. Amen. And the thing I took away from that, you know, and I've been, of course, I've been following the election both as a participant in the primaries, um, as someone who actually worked in the primaries, and also as a regular kind of commentator, I guess, here in Australia. Um, the thing that struck me is actually how the rhetoric that I saw that afternoon in Tampa was really different um, than what was being... Um, at least kind of broadcast mostly around the world. Um, and I'm not the first person to say this. I'm the great investigative journalist and scholar Christian Parenti. Um, if you guys don't know his work, he writes on a lot of this stuff and is really a kind of brilliant scholar. You know, Christian did a kind of deep dive and watched every single um, YouTube video of a Trump speech and he knows the same thing and that's Despite the occasional locker up chant and despite the occasional uh, build-the-wall chant, basically it was an hour and a half of good jobs, good jobs, good jobs. I'm going to give you good jobs, good jobs, good jobs. Hey, by the way, there's, we don't have good jobs. We used to have good jobs. I'm going to give you good jobs. Did I tell you I'm going to give you good jobs? Right? So that's really, it was really basically an hour and a half again of that. Now, look, ignoring the cargo cult aspect of that, right? I mean, there's no mention of how those good jobs are going to come. Um, I bring this up because insofar as kind of Glenda's um, advertising for this event right, um, says, quote, there is no word more per- that has more purchase in contemporary political discourse than globalization. And I certainly completely agree with that statement. The reason it has political discourse, or political um, valence, is when most people, and by this I mean at least kind of most voters, and um, at least Western democracies hear globalization, they hear decline of good jobs. Um, so that is to say, global, and these two things are, of course, not the same, and I want to talk about a little bit. That is to say, conflicts over globalization are not conflicts over jet travel, right? They're generally not even conflicts over the financialization of market, the global financialization of markets, over the Internet in our pockets, right, um, over more access to consumer products. And even when they do have a tinge of a kind of imagine authentic community, that is to say, like, you know, Protesting against a McDonald's or a Starbucks, right, in in France and these kinds of things, right, how the McDonaldization of consumption threatens kind of uh, these kind of imagined true authentic Frenchness or Australianist communities, right, and their services and goods, those tend not to also really produce much in terms of political um, kind of valence. Now, I do want to come back to, and I think it's an important question: how much um, xenophobia, um, as well as a kind of fears of cultural decline are associated with globalization, but again, I want to kind of emphasize that at least kind of, from my perspective, both as a historian and someone kind of trying to understand contemporary politics, globalization becomes not simply a catchphrase, but in fact an obscuring mechanism, again, for concerns over good job. Um, So why? Why is globalization associated with good jobs, or more importantly, the lack thereof, right? I mean, first and foremost, it's not a wrong... Explanation. It's not the most complete, it's part of the explanation, right? And that's, you know, it was one kind of this, that down curve in, again, Western industrialized countries from that kind of 50 to 80% level is precisely what I'm talking about here, right? Um, And hopefully, as we all know by now, right, it's not um, outsourcing of production as much as it is automation, and I would, um, that is in fact responsible for the decline of industrial jobs, good industrial jobs in particular. Um, And I would also, Emphasize that so it's again beyond automation, it's also a variety of political factors. Um, that is to say, thing, uh, a variety of upwardly distributive political factors, right, ranging from tax credits for home financing or negative gearing here, right, to corporate welfare, right, that make um, the cost of living and also the kind of cost of maintaining what was presumed to be an everyday kind of good life harder and harder. And I also, again, want to emphasize. Most every job in the world was a bad job before it became a good job. That is to say, assembly line production for the vast majority of the 19th and into the 20th century was a bad job. Fit for really the kind of people who most of society would happily throw away were a cheaper alternative to come in, right? Dock work was a bad job. Nursing was a bad job. Even accounting, in fact, well at the beginning of the 19th and into the early 20th century was a highly low wage job, right? So these jobs become good jobs, right, not through some natural economic forces, but intervention into markets, whether that's on the part of politics, on the part of unions, um, right, on the part of professionalization in the case of groups like nurses and accountants. Um, so that is to say, people's explanations as to why they don't have good jobs are not completely wrong. They're not right either. But um, so, again, I again, want to emphasize that that mantra, and again, it's a cargo cult mantra, right, of elect me, and the planes will deliver you good jobs, good jobs, good jobs, without any policy, nonetheless, hits on something that is important. Um, So, moving on from that, right? um, Good jobs and globalization, um, good jobs as one aspect of their decline through globalization, that is the classic notion of outsourcing. You take your imaginary... You know, RCA firm, say RCA, right, the great radio and electronics manufacturer that slowly moved over the course of the 60s and 70s, first from outside of Philadelphia and the city of Camden to Memphis in search of cheaper wages to then Juarez, Mexico in search of cheaper wages, right? You can follow this in various kind of iterations. That classic notion has a flip side, right? So, on the one hand, as firms have sought out cheaper wages and all things being equal, if a firm through economies of scale, ranging from containerization to, financial mar- um, to global financial markets, can seek out ch- cheaper wages. It will, right? Um, if a firm, um, all things being equal, firms have, and they have for centuries, right? This is not also a new development. Again, a, historian, a classic historian's um, input. But the flip side of that is just as firms have sought out high wages uh, or lower wages in various labor markets around the world, so too have low-wage workers sought wages in so-called high-wage economies, right? Um, so again, this cuts both ways. And, um, and this is where I want to bring in the question of xenophobia and kind of the fears of the mythical cultural decline that are associated with Trump, with Brexit, with Marine Le Pen, and various other reactions to kind of so-called globalization. Now, of course, there's no question, right, that all these reactions have drawn upon deep veins in xenophobia and racist ideology people, though, or most people, I think are much more complicated in this regard than we give them credit for. Um, most people are not Nigel Farange, right? Most people are not Richard Spencer in the United States. Uh, most people are not Pauline Hansen here in this regard. Um, and the reason I say that is I've seen no real historical or contemporary evidence that in the absence of downward pressure on wages and expected standards of living, anti-immigrant sentiment becomes politically salient, of which, um, that is to say, in the absence Of those of, again, downward pressure on jobs, a declining amount of good jobs, again, in quotation marks, um, in the absence of that happening, immigration at various stages in a variety of countries does not become a contentious political issue. And indeed, insofar as xenophobia and racism are ideologies themselves, and I don't know really what else we could call them, They do the work of explaining around them, and in these particular contexts, explaining decline or fear of decline. That is to say, people who see this or see this in their localized communities, right, and worry that they're next. Um, Generally speaking, people who are not declining have no fear of declension, therefore no need to explain it. That some people blame immigrants or refugees for the decline of a world they expected to inhabit is only to say that some people are experiencing decline. And usually, an acknowledgement of that decline, even if it's in the kind of cargo cult form of Trump or Brexit, again, no no pun intended, um, will trump a lack of acknowledgement of that decline politically. Um, And indeed, I want to kind of re-emphasize to a point that John made about the highly localized nature of this, right? And um, a great historian, Mike Davis, um, who's a great kind of labor and economic historian, who's ranged across a variety of genres of writing in his career, um, did a very close and still by far, I think, the most interesting kind of explanation of the real kind of key shifts in voting behavior in 2016 in the United States. And the one thing he found is the counties in the three key states of Wisconsin, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, that is to say, Hillary Clinton's so-called firewall, um, and the states that um, saw dramatic shifts in um, basically both from Obama voters to Trump voters, the counties where you saw those shifts all lost a factor in the last year. The ma- major counties the those all lost a factor in the last year, right? Not one of the counties of the highest, like, seven in each state of shift didn't have specific job laws. So even as a kind of both Obama and Hillary Clinton can point to a growing GDP, right, an improving economy coming out of 2009, that very small localized thing can have a massive impact politically globally. Um, so and to really quickly conclude, um, I want to suggest that globalization is a catch-all phrase, both in its indeterminacy and even more so um, is, in, in fact, an ideological concept itself. Um, seeing the two reactions, the two most contentious and quotidianly experienced um, aspects of globalization, that is to say the decline of so-called good jobs and the growth of new immigrant communities across all aspects, all parts of the West are part of the same process, does certain ideological work in and of itself. It serves to delegitimize reaction to the very real decline of good jobs through associating with the racist and culturalist ideological explanations of this decline, and again, you can, I mean, to give a few kind of very clear examples, right, in the context of um, the 2016 American Democratic primaries, there is a, one of the main levels of attack in a variety of ways against Bernie Sanders comes when he says he's not for open borders, right? And this becomes evidence of his appeal, again, towards the cultural nationalist notion, right? You see this in Brexit, right, and a kind of continual browbeating of Jerry Cor- Jeremy Corbyn for not Condemning Brexit well enough, right? You saw this in the French election, right? With uh, Mélenchon's, again browbeating over not pushing, um, over saying to his supporters, "Don't vote for Le Pen," rather than saying, "Vote for Macron." Right? Um, all of whom have very particular political reasons to do so, right? Um, so again, what I want to suggest is. By not being specific about the term, the term has essentially come to be a very legitimating um, term for what I think, and I don't like the term neoliberalism, but for what I would just say is a kind of global liberalism. That is to say, the large amount of folks who have benefited from globalization in terms of disregarding the people around them who have not benefited, and disregarding the real claims of people around them who have not benefited. So, I'll stop there. Great. Right.
0: Thank you very much, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you. ask a question, and I actually wouldn't mind if John uh, addressed this as well. So, um, you know, one of the interesting kind of, you know, there are a lot of bogies in this story, but one of them is uh, historical ones. So the kind of looking back to the 1930s and the the, uh, widespread move to protectionism in that era and the rejection of what was also seen in that era as a kind of globalization but it would have been called Internationalisation or internationalism at that time, and so uh, you know, if you think of what was called what we call autarky, the idea of national self-efficiency of some kind and retreating from um, any kind of dependency on on um, external to the nation um, uh, production and uh, sources of consumption, uh, consumption goods. So, you know, is To what extent is this a question of trying to draw... to find the line somewhere between national and global where it's not an either-or situation? And, and, you know, first I'd ask you, Thomas, about that historical analogy Mm. and whether or not you think it's a useful one for thinking about anything. And, John, in your case, whether... You know, there is an interest amongst uh, economists in thinking about nuancing... Uh, what you call product linkages, I suppose, and you also refer to occasionally Mm -hmm. as globalization, but, you know, that there's some kind of way in which we really need to rethink the relationship between the nation and the global, or is it just a matter of um, fixing perceptions of something that's supposedly out of balance but isn't Mm -hmm. really? Thomas.
2: I mean, the, the historical comparison is interesting, right, because the 1930s are the point... Um, If you look at a graph like that for an individual country historically, right, where in some cases, and this is more post-war in other cases, but it depends, again, in the U.S. and Canada, um, as well as in in Antipodes, where you start to see that decline in inequality, and inequality is another term I'm not happy with these days, but... um, (laughs) it is to say that that is a time when the nation-state began to take, make those kind of labor market interventions, right, in the, for the purpose of raising basically the basement level of um, life, of ex- expectations in the world. Um, so with that being said, I would say that insofar as the nation-state continues to largely be the only institution able to do that, it has to kind of come at that. So that is to say that um, does that mix answer your question about the kind of relationship between the national and the international? No, I mean there are other you know um, institutions that can do that. And I mean one thinks of the ways, for instance, free trade gets conceived of um, in terms of you know one can imagine a country saying you know fine you know absolutely um, you know compete for production with us, but you know make sure that. You honor a standard of living, right, in terms of minimum wages, in terms of workers' rights, in terms of access to healthcare, in terms of access to housing, and things like that. That we do, even if it's, of course, cheaper in Bangladesh than it is in Canada. Nonetheless, one can say, okay, that's competing on an even playing field, which is, or in Thomas Friedman's world, right, um, on a flat world, as he puts it. Um, So I think, in that regard, the nation state is still where those things come from. Where the and those are the things, I guess, kind of, I'm interested in. But because I'm interested in them, but also I think that's where globalization as a term, again, has political importance beyond you know, whether or not you like McDonald's or prefer your old whatever used to be on the corner, right?
1: Mm. John. So I think the 1930s is actually better viewed as in terms of being the previous global financial crisis. Right. So okay. essentially a lot of the economic policies in response to the early the onset of the 1930s, the depression of the 1930s, is uh, because there was uh, like banking collapses in many countries and so uh, investment shut down cross-border capital flows shut down and then countries trying to protect whatever financial institutions they still had often uh, put up barriers to uh, flows of trade and flows of uh, flows of capital so i think the um, what and it's interesting that the more recent events seem to have followed from our more recent financial crisis. Mm. Uh, and what they point more to is not so much getting a better handle or control on globalisation or changing the relationship between the, the nation and, uh, and the world economy. It's more about uh, something a bit simpler, well, something uh, a bit more narrow, and that is really much better regulation of the financial sector, um, both domestically in individual countries and globally as well, because right. uh, both of these uh, crises uh, were... Uh, Partly caused by poorly designed international monetary systems, in the case of the 1930s, and uh, poorly supervised and regulated financial systems uh, as well. So in both periods, and that's the thing that they really have to get uh, have to get right. I think that's the message that comes from the 1930s. So it's not
0: protectionism versus globalization, <coughs> but in fact regulation.
1: Is yeah, it's sensible regulation of your um, fin- international financial system,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and realizing that. Uh, financial systems are connected across countries and perhaps a little bit more interconnected than they should be given the uh, relative absence of interconnection of the real economy. uh, And that is something that itself can produce a bit of instability. Oh,
0: that's interesting. So
1: uh, the more, because essentially, uh, when capital is much more mobile in some sense than the underlying goods and services, then uh, very rapid uh, reversals and flows of capital can be quite destabilizing. Mm. Uh, and particularly for financial sector, as financial system is not very well regulated and supervised, um, or managed by its own managers, then that creates uh, uh, that can create a lot of problems.
0: Um, well, you know, in two thousand and eleven, I think it was Thomas and I were on a panel here that Thomas set up, talking about Thomas Piketty's book on uh, which capitalism, which hit the shelves. Everybody, how many people here have a copy? Not many? Didn't you go and buy a copy? I thought everyone better. You made a fortune out of them. How many people read it? (laughs) I dipped in. Uh, But, you know, it was was an important book, you know, and it seemed as if everybody thought they should have it and be looking at it. I heard stories, Thomas used to tell stories of people going, you know, high-end sort of hedge fund managers walking around with copies to show that they were interested in global inequality. Um, and, and the point of the book was that um, you know, the, the global inequality was going off the charts, and it was going to get worse and worse. I mean, he didn't talk about globalization as the problem in particular. There were other kinds of uh, sources for, for global inequality. But I thought what was interesting is that at that time, there, the kinds of interventions that were being spoken about were global and they were about kind of the global governance of um, the challenges of regulation, but also introducing things that have got a history, ideas about international taxation, for example, as well as... Um, and finding different ways of doing it, of course, and using the EU. He thought the EU could be an instrument. We well, Now I know that's kind of going the other way. But, um, you know, so is this a lost discussion? So now that... you know, In a way, I'm picking up Thomas's point that globalisation, in a way, has become... Um, the, the debate has shifted so much in the direction of globalization that we aren't thinking about um, the, the debate that was going on then, that was much more about regulation and much more about um, the global governance of what was a, a global challenge, inequality.
2: you want to start? I can start. Um, um, so, I mean, my first, yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about the Piketty book, um, right, is that, as Gwenda points out, right, he's proposing these supposedly nominal um, solutions to the problem. Um, where I always had an issue with the book, um, which I think speaks to this point, right, is there's a lot of great solutions to global inequality that one can imagine. and We could all go out to the pub and probably come up with a bunch of them ourselves easily enough. And it's the problem is not, right... I mean, for most of human history, most of humans have understood they live in a deeply unequal world, right, and that they're not getting by very well and there's a few other people over there, whether that's at the top of the skyscraper or up on the castle, right who are getting by a lot better. The problem is, right, having any viable realistic mechanism to change that fact, right? Um, And that's where, and precisely I think John's point, right, about the relative speed of capital mobility versus goods and services, and Glenn's point about, um, again, the need for international mechanisms to do this, I think, comes in. I mean, where things like the IMF, right, and the World Bank could be institutions to do this the fact that they're not essentially democratically governed is precisely right the thing that um, leads to in absence of no one else you know saying oh wait you're losing good jobs leads to a Brexit, leads to a Trump leads to Le Pen increasing your vote toll every single election Um, so I guess the historian and old school cantankerous political scientist in me me says that's all fine and good but in the classic poli-sci way right who gets what when where and how is the only question
0: we going to. Find, I'm going to actually ask John about the IMF in a minute. But you, you answer the way you
2: want. Yeah,
1: on the uh, <coughs> on the Piketty book, I must admit I haven't read the uh, <laughs> book. Uh, I- I won't reveal why because it's unkind, um, so but you it's... Okay,
0: uh, I was wondering how economists look
1: at it. Okay. No, it's not that the, the arguments are necessarily wrong, but it just took a long time to make them. So, <laughs> so I kind of have, have, kind of have revealed why. Um, stories write books, um, write articles, I know. It's, <laughs> it's true, we write articles, not books. Economists aren't rewarded for writing books. Um, so, um, but uh, I, his, his key point I don't think is wrong, um, and actually, one of the one of the big reasons is going to be rising inequality. Or sorry, leaving aside the big growth in China and India, which is something that at a global level is helping to reduce inequality, but in many individual countries, there's rising inequality. And one reason for it is that uh, a lot of people basically there's a lot of accumulation of capital going on in many countries, but the ownership of capital is relatively uh, narrow within an economy because essentially most people don't save right? If you don't save, you're not going to accumulate capital. So uh, essentially, the capital is becoming more important in the economy. You're becoming the the amount of productive machinery relative to the amount of people is growing in most places. Uh, And while ever the return to actually operating that machinery remains relatively constant, the share of national income going to capital will gradually rise. Um, and uh, since capital is relatively narrowly owned, that will produce inequality in overall income. It doesn't mean that, but um, uh, the, the, doesn't necessarily mean that the workers are worse off, right? The, the national pie is getting bigger. It's just those who own capital are getting an even bigger slice of it than they did before. Um, however, something which I, I should see whether he did study this is that there's a bit of a change in the nature of, um, uh, of, of some capital. And uh, like you might have seen things like uh, driverless cars, for example, and more artificial intelligence and uh, in, embedded into certain uh, in, uh, into computers. Uh, increasingly, various bits of machinery and the software that drives it becomes increasingly substitutable for some types of labor right, for the tasks that you can do. Now, if that machinery is both becoming more substitutable for you and cheaper, then that has implications for the wages that you will earn in the market. Because if a businessman or woman can say, look, I can just get a machine to do this, they're going to pay you more to do the same thing, right? Because the machine will work 24 hours a day. So essentially, the the bigger threat, and I should see whether he's identified this, is if this becomes more and if machinery and software becomes more and more substitutable for the tasks that you do, your wage earnings will go down, at least until the time that the economy accumulates an immense amount of capital, and that might be decades away. Mm-hmm. So that I think is the uh, the uh, is the threat. Um, and uh, in individual economies, is, is that uh, it's technological developments that will likely lead to rising inequality in coming decades.
2: Um, Thomas, you want to yeah, yeah, I was just going to um, pick. I mean, someone pick up on that. And, um, and so one thing that Piketty doesn't do, um, or doesn't really suggest, right? And one, I'm not a huge fan of the former colleague of John Cass Sunstein who's a philosopher and legal scholar, um, but. Sunstein suggested, of course, that inequality is not the problem. The problem is basically the level of the basement, and the basement is getting lower, right? That is to say, the basic, one's basic relational standard of living. Um, but I would, I would suggest that the, another part of this problem that we haven't identified, right, is a growing, essentially, what we might say, marketization, what I tend to like to think of is a growing... Um, moral boundary of the marketplace to include more and more things, whether that's education, right, healthcare, old age security, leisure, things that had for a while been removed from the marketplace, right, and John's absolutely right, right, in a world which machines, right, and this is not, um, will begin to take the place of labor that absolutely drives down labor costs, that is the nature of the assembly line itself, right, Um, you know, so that's not a new thing, but again, that world doesn't exist in a world that never exists, right? It operates in a particular historical context, and so one can go through in all sorts of ways, right, where the technology in the context of the technology that comes in that allows for, in theory, that driving down of wages in the context of, say, the the strength of the United Auto Workers in Detroit and the American Midwest in the 1950s and 60s actually leads to higher wages, right? How containerization, because of the strength of, in the United States of the West Coast, longshore Union, which is stronger than the East Coast for a variety of historical reasons, led to, again, the most, the most important kind of technological advancement in sea shipping and global shipping, really, in human history, actually led to a growth in wages, right? Because of the ability, again, it happened in a specific context. So I just want to kind of throw that in there.
0: Right. So context counts, and... And I think context might also count for the IMF. I'm quite interested in organisations and how they change, depending on who's running them and the, how they adapt to changing external circumstances. So you were at the IMF. So how do we think of it? Is it, is, is it a tool of globalisation uh, or is it an instrument for, for ta- taking up, tackling the challenges of inequality? How did you find it?
1: Oh, it's it's certainly not an instrument for tackling inequality. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh, uh, it, its role its um, it, its main role is as a uh, essentially uh, kind of a bank to countries. Right, the IMF is a bank and the World Bank is a fund. The names are all wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so essentially, a country gets into a crisis, then uh, needs a bailout. The IMF will uh, uh, conditionally lend it uh, conditionally lend it money, and it'll impose conditions in order for that money to be uh, dispersed. Uh, the IMF also does a lot of other research to actually uh, advise, uh, advise countries on uh, how to con- uh, run their economies. How it's done that, is gener- is its thinking has evolved over time, though, and has evolved in line with uh, more general economic uh, thinking. So in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, economists, well, early se- up to the early 70s, uh, most economists would have described themselves as Keynesian, and sort of seen a fair role for sort of more active government intervention in terms of uh, to moderate the business cycle, saw that was a more positive role for, uh, for government policy and given they had a relatively stable international financial system, uh, which was basically because there wasn't much of an international financial system, uh, capital movements were suppressed, um, essentially uh, they had a pretty easy time. Now in the 1970s that all broke down. So uh, with the uh, essentially with the the breakdown of the Bretton Woods uh, fixed exchange rate system, associated changes in how countries conducted their monetary policy, uh, and with uh, the old Keynesian thinking, sort of actually led to a breakout in inflation in many countries because they hadn't actually adapted to the underlying change in economic circumstances that came about in the 1970s. And so then um, the, uh, the IMF... Uh, basically their thinking began to change and they adopted the new thinking that was uh, evolving in economics that was, you might have heard the term, monetarists back in the late 70s, early 1980s. And their thinking became more in line with that and eventually became uh, aligned with something that became moved from the Keynesian consensus to the Washington consensus, which is basically tight money, free markets, deregulation. But then the global financial crisis has kind of revealed some of the limits of deregulation, and they've taken a bit of a step backwards to say, actually, we need better oversight of some of our financial institutions, and uh, there is actually uh, there is some role also for active government policy to fight recession. So they've gradually changed their views in response to the previous crisis. So I believe it's a decent institution gradually learning as imperfectly as it can from the very mixed state of economic theory and the very different circumstances that keep get, throwing, keep get thrown at it.
0: OK. Well, I'm all for institutions and people learning. So that's great. Um, and now uh, is your turn to ask questions of the panel. So Meredith up there has the mic. And we've got a question right down here, Meredith. Sorry. Well, there's also Lucia up the back. You can start with her, and then we'll come down
3: the front. Over here. Thank you very much. It was a very interesting panel. Have you ever had the impression that globalisation is a nice word used by international organisations and by the, both the, the political elites, both in the post-colonial countries and in the so-called Western countries, to conceal the fact that we are still in a colonial order in terms of economy and balance of powers? <laughs> and I am asking both the economist and the historian.
1: Sorry, what was the verb you used? I didn't hear it. The
0: verb. What verb did
1: you use? Did you say steal?
0: Yes. Still in. In a colonial order. In a colonial.
2: Oh. Um, I mean, I would just say yes. Um. (laughs) But,
4: (laughs) But, I mean, what I would
2: reply, I mean, no, but the terms matter, right? And colonial, I don't think, I mean, insofar, imperial might be a better term, right? I mean, because colonial implies specific forms of governance, which... Are not the case mostly anymore. Um, So I think I would maybe say imperial. Um, I mean, when I you know when I teach American history here, I mean one of and do my kind of lecture on the U.S. and Latin America. I mean, largely, I mean the U.S.'s two hundred and fifty year policy, two hundred and twenty year policy in Latin America has been one not simply of military intervention, although it's been a lot of that, but um, more to the point, it's been economic imperialist invention, and that does not go away with the end of colonialism by any means. In fact, it, you know, if it maintains itself even more so in a lot of ways today in various countries. So, yes.
1: Yeah, I'm not. am not so sure. Uh, I don't think. I think um, your argument had some validity some uh, decades ago, but I think often these sort of arguments are thrown around by countries that say, well, uh, uh, it's easier to blame somebody else for their problems than blame themselves. So um, I just uh, I I don't see a lot in it.
2: I, I mean, just to really push back against that, I mean, it, right. I mean, whether it's whether you whether you buy you know Dilma Rousseff's removal as as a democratic coup or as simply the kind of notion of impeachment, um, or more in particular the more recent actual coup in Honduras, generally you get to do what you want in most of these places, if you have a prevalence of the means of force, so long as you don't threaten the economic interests of the major traditional imperial place in those reasons. In, those, in this case, right, and again, I can only really speak to Latin America, but in this case, the United States. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't look the exact same as... Although maybe it does in the case of Honduras, right, um, as it did traditionally, but it's, the effect is essentially the
0: same. But, you know, that graph might... You know, talk if we're talking about context, right? Mm. So that graph suggests because I think one of the interesting things is that if you look globally, then you might argue that globalization is about the evening up mm. of um, uh, what were larger inequalities between the first and the third world, right? Mm. Because it's and a lot of this is about what's happening in the in the third world, the former third, developing world, if you like, so India, yeah. China, um, and the. That that's where the growth has been. So the globalization might be a good thing for some.
2: Yeah, although my it? response, I mean, again, I know the numbers on Latin America better than any, and, and I don't know the numbers elsewhere. Is that, you know, taking that, that graph is true on a macro level, but at in an individual country, right. There's that it's still a massive growth of inequality within that country, right? Mm-hmm. So even though the bottom that bottom is going up relative to the rest of the world, which is reflected in that graph. Is still internal to that country has been a hyper in some ways and I think in some places a much more monopolization of wealth.
1: Okay. Now I'm not a historian but uh, Rousseff was removed by domestic force, Brazilians, right?
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Doesn't have much to do with imperialism or colonialism I would have thought. Whereas say if you're talking about the removal mm-hmm. of Alende 40 uh, mm-hmm. odd years ago, yep. that, that, that's much more to do with it. So I think yes, some decade in the not so distant past. You had a lot more relevance. I think a little less so now mm-hmm.
2: is my thought. Okay. Uh, well, we'll wait to see what happens in Venezuela. All right,
3: next. <laughs> yes. Hi. Um, Eagerly. I worked in the occupational health industry for, you know, 40-something years. And um, what I noticed was as changes occurred to improve efficiency and you know, costs, all this sort of stuff for international markets or whatever they did, it also decreased a lot of risk to people 's health and safety it made industries a lot a lot of jobs a lot safer for people I 'm not sure how it goes in China or India or some of the other developing countries, but I know that um, all my understanding is in America some of the jobs that have been lost say in the coal industry um, you know the people's health isn't so good if they haven't had another job but I just wondered about that aspect of decreasing risk or making people healthier, because a lot of people here in Australia, anyway, and I'm, it would have occurred internationally, a lot of... It didn't matter whether it was construction, mining, um, office work, you know, we've got computers or whatever, brickwork, making bricks or whatever, the jobs are an awful lot safer than they used to be. So, and just
0: there first, and then we'll go... We're going to go slowly work our way up to the back.
4: Ah, oh, thank you. Thanks for this we'll evening.
0: T- we'll click some <coughs> comments, questions,
4: yeah. Okay. Um, a, a very good presentation this evening. We talked an awful lot about labour, about capital, about uh, trade, manufacturing. Um, I'm just Professor John did use the word a couple of times about connectivity of uh, financial systems between countries. Um, I, I think, I'm just wondering where you see connectivity uh, between people to people and also uh, people to business. I'm thinking particularly in the developing world where um, through the use of technology, through uh, mobile phones, microfinancing has uh, actually enabled people to get involved with uh,
2: globalization. And I'm also just wondering if globalization is uh, the new shiny word for what we used to call uh, before the global financial crisis, uh, the tarnished word of uh, capitalism.
0: Back to capitalism, okay? And take one more, just there,
4: and then we'll go that way. Okay. The, and then we'll come back to the panel. Uh, is it time to uh, redefine globalisation? Not so much with the stigma of free trade, which, you know, over the last two decades has sort of got some really dark, dark money sort of images, uh, Would it be better to sort of redefine globalisation as integrated international trade based on uh, research, social research, like uh, Putnam's research, where there's supposed to be a positive economic benefit from being inclusive, and certainly much of international trade is not very inclusive. It does have an end result. And a lot of it's not good and not known for the future. So why, do, why doesn't economics uh, include parameters, not just metrics that sort of don't have any human perception in them? John. <laughs>
0: you, have, you now have to
4: explain
0: profession.
1: Okay. Um, in, <laughs> in what order should I ask the questions? By any in order. Any, any order. So... Um, uh, so... Uh, as your pointed, jobs are, are better and safer. absolutely. So uh, particularly in, um, uh, particularly in developed countries, you do see that uh, death rates um, in uh, occupations have come uh, way down. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why just one of the reasons why life expectancy in most wealthy countries has gone way up. Uh, the US is actually a slight exception to that. Its growth in life expectancy has been uh, really poor. Um, and actually uh, the, the growth in trade, Displacing some of the U.S. workers has also been associated with rising death rates in the most affected uh, uh, most affected uh, areas. Um, although lower heart attack rates, that's probably because they're not working. Um, but essentially, yeah. But on average, yeah, jobs have got much better. But if uh, we mismanage globalization, the disaffected uh, uh, can be can be uh, hit by that. Um, so uh, when you're you're talking about uh, um, essentially globalization, maybe you should. Think of it just as a, just recall it capitalism. Well, it's just capitalism on an international scale. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with capitalism. Uh, So uh, that's all it is, right? And it's just saying, look, if you reduce the costs of doing business internationally, then they'll become more interconnected in some sense, and you will get uh, capitalist enterprises expanding internationally and selling their goods and services uh, internationally. And I have zero issues with that. Uh, I was a little more, I wasn't quite sure how to respond to the dark money, not inclusive, not good uh, parameter. Um, It's kind of uh, a, so some aspects of international trade uh, do cause some some cause for concern. Um, And uh, it's partly because we haven't uh, chosen to address some of the uh, potentially adverse things uh, from it. So, for example, when we try to do good by raising occupational health standards or by raising pollution standards in one country, well, um, some other country might decide, well, we'll keep our costs relatively low by not having those standards. And so international trade um, can potentially undermine standards in one country by actually uh, by allowing the goods to be produced somewhere else, right? And this is actually a hypothesis studied in economics. It's known as the pollution haven hypothesis, and there is some support for that. Now, there are potential mechanisms to deal with it, and there are things that we will have to confront if we want to deal with climate change so one of the reasons why it 's been very hard to get uh, uh, climate effective climate change policies in australia uh, is not just because of the hyper partisanship it 's actually because uh, there is an issue with traded uh, industries and essentially if you if we 're the one if we put in a scheme that affects, uh, like puts on a carbon tax, for example, that will disproportionately produce, uh, raise costs in industries that intensively use carbon. So a lot of our goods producing industries. And if other countries don't do that, then, well, you've got to come up with some sort of mechanism to uh, uh, to, 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 care for that. And uh, that is theoretically possible with international trading institutions like the WTO, but it just hasn't been tackled. Um, other issues, the inequality one. It's like, well, trade potentially makes, can potentially make more people better off, actually everybody better off. Uh, and there's actually, if you want like just simple anecdotal examples rather than my metrics, uh, for example, I uh, as I grew up in Campbelltown. My first job was in the Kmart of Campbelltown when it was built there in the mid-1980s. I actually worked in the uh, footwear section for a while as the Al Bundy of Campbelltown, I guess, um, and uh, kind of, and you'd actually have people there that, that they basically struggled to afford a pair of shoes, right? Um, because shoes, they were almost all produced in Australia at times, at the time, and even a modest, uh, a modest Kmart shoe at that time would cost twenty or thirty Australian dollars. and This is thirty years ago, and that was money that a lot of people of lower income simply didn't have, and uh, trade, basically, says, well, yeah, and I used to remember there was a shoe factory and textile factories in Campbelltown. Those things moved on, moved overseas, probably to Korea at first, um, and those workers eventually probably were redeployed in places like Kmart. Um, But it turned out their incomes enabled them to purchase more shoes at the new lower prices that they were coming in at Kmart. So essentially, trade potentially reduces the prices of many important uh, goods and services that people have to purchase, um, but it does have labour market impacts. But to say that, um, yeah, so economics tries to actually trace through all of those things to say, well, what happens when you take account of all of that? Um, and unfortunately, it mostly focuses on what happens in the long term. In the short term, we know there's more dislocation and more adverse effects as people, the people who lost their jobs in the textile factories, they don't immediately move to came up. Um, it takes them a while to, uh, to find... Uh, to find find those new positions. Uh, And economics is not as good at focusing on those short-run dislocations, and uh, we should do a better job.
2: Can I I actually just respond really quick? Because I think you pointed to, and this was Glenda's question earlier, right? Um, And uh, I agree pretty much with everything you just said in that, you know, capitalism, or globalization is nothing more than international capitalism. And that's in some ways precisely kind of the point, right? In that global governance structures, as much as some people might like them to be, are not the same as domestic governance structures. And so in terms of taming something like or regulating it in various ways, state nation-states can do so in ways that global governance just right. can't do, right? Um, and then that leads, though, to this kind of feedback loop towards the kind of the problems and the, what people who say who support something like Brexit have been hearing, right? The, the notion of global governance has been a boogeyman in a lot of ways for a lot of people for a long time, right? Because it is precisely an incursion on national sovereignty, right? And so the response to globalization and the, the right response is, of course, global governance, right? I mean, we can't roll back most of this stuff. But that does hit at a very particular point for a lot of people. And the kind of tone deafness of not seeing that point, I think, again, is coming back to bite us in a lot of ways.
0: But, I, you know... It is true, though, as you mentioned, that you can deal with these questions at a global level. There are instruments for regulating, like the WTO. But also, if you think about um, uh, the ILO, right? For a long time, that has been an important instrument of trying to create minimal wa- minimum wages, you know, regulate work conditions. and the- And sometimes the nation state becomes a space <coughs> that retreats and rejects those. Well, that's attempts. precisely John's Human point. Human rights, the same sort yeah, of
2: thing about the, right? the so, pollution hypothesis, right? That, yeah. And given the option, my, my understanding of firms is they will find the cheap labor, they will right. find the cheap production costs, right? Um, but I think, and my yeah, understanding both, of the ILO but I just is they think don't have In the terms t- of
0: our professions, both yeah. economists and historians share mm-hmm. the capacity and the desire to not think in terms of generalizations in the sense that uh, cliches about mm-hmm. Um, what is going on, but to actually kind of drill down and i say using data um, of different kinds and understand just how important context is in these cases, and, and sometimes historians, even though we do do the long term, we also think much more um, in terms of the immediate effects of uh, these forces in the past, well, not the present. Um, but you know economists do too, depending on what kind you are, right. So that's a, that's a, that was a sell for history and e- economics, okay, okay. Um, and what we have in common. We have a question up there. We'll take three more. So starting up the back.
4: Hi. Hi. Um, so question for the panel about if you have any ideas about uh, potentially effective interventions to address those who have lost out as a result of globalization. Um, could many people are... Resentful, arguably justifiably resentful. Their resentments are having convulsive effects on our politics. You hear people talking, uh, offering platitudes about, like, job training or endorsing protectionist views that I think most economists don't think would help at all. So one worries that um, on the sort of practical policy Intervention side, um, we're not getting much in public. Okay, so, I wondered so if you thought it? about that.
0: Okay, uh, we have um, just thinking about hey, if we take, was there one more at the back there? No, okay, keep coming down. Sorry, there is. So, we've got um, one, two, three have their hands up, and then we'll take the last slide. Okay.
5: Um, Yes. Firstly, thank you for the presentation today. Um, I can't keep my eye off off that chart on the screen there, and I just wanted to sort of get your views on what you think that chart will look like in another 20, 30 years' time, Um, because, you know, you touched briefly about um, topics like automation and things like AI that um, are happening in the world today, and so... I guess I just wanted to um, get your views on whether you think the the trends on that screen there will become you know more exacerbated in the years ahead.
0: Okay, some future casting. We've got a question in front
2: there. How do you view the insidious creep of political globalization via the unelected United Nations?
5: Um. Dr. Adams, thank you uh, specifically. This question is specifically for you. Um, Dr. Adams, you said that Brexit and Trump and other anti-globalization movements were due to largely to econ worries, economics worries, not racism, uh, and that most people who voted for Trump aren't like Richard Spencer or anything like that. But um, at least the visibility of racism and xenophobia um, has, to some people, increased in the U.S., especially since Trump's election. Um, what has caused this increase in racism, xenophobia, anti-immigrant, built-the-wall sentiments? And uh, has xenophobic attitudes in the U.S. or in Western countries in general increased, or has only the visibility of it increased? Okay, good question. All
0: right. So maybe we'll take those while we get ready for the last look. Okay. Uh,
2: Thomas, do you want to go? Sure. Going in order, first to Sam's question. um, I mean, again, I go back to my. I mean, my fix and what actually my kind of long-term empirical research is on is actually revaluing labor, um, which I think is actually the fix at any kind of localized level. That is to say, making jobs that used to be bad jobs into good jobs um, through political means. But which again begs the question: the fix is a political fix, right? And there is no politics out there that can demand that fix, so there is no fix. Um, So it is building a pilot, and to that, I would say, look towards the moments where there had been previous fixes. Indeed, the the fix that produced the kind of post-war bargain of the welfare state that began to eat into that curve. Um, In terms of that curve, I think it's moving to the left. I mean, I hate to be a prognosticator, but that is to say the downturn, I think, pushes over there um, without anything else. Um, And then, uh, in regards to the last question, I would say I mean look, I, I think in one thing it is an increased invisibility of um racist sentiment, xenophobic sentiment, um across America and indeed across the world, right? I think that is um important. What I the um Steve Bannon, you know, Trump's evil genius, supposed uh um advisor, right? I mean, had this kind of um quote after Charlottesville where he, you know, basically says, like, we've got them right where we want them, where they're focusing on racism, you know, and then we've got economic nationalism. Um, And what he means by economic nationalism is not the actuality, but the rhetoric of good jobs, good jobs, good jobs, good jobs, right? Um, Whether they actually exist, they don't. Uh, Or whether they're coming, they don't. Um, And so what I mean to say by it's – look, I mean, Trump voters are disproportionately upper-middle class, They're the same voters who voted for Mitt Romney, right? In terms of that kind of switch of economic nationalism, again, you can isolate it into places that literally watched their own job go away in the last year or that of their neighbor, their sister, their mother, their brother, right? Um, So, I mean, to me, it's not so much of a question of some kind of inchoate notion of growing racist sentiment or xenophobic sentiment, right? It's a question of, again, going back to what are the political mechanisms that that is drawing Right? And, what are the, and more importantly, what, what are the political mechanisms that can be done to overcome that? Um, and again, I go back to suggest that places where there's not traditionally been downward pressure on, um, and specifically in regard to immigration, right, where there has not been downward pressure on jobs, on that lower end economic growth, and where there hasn't been an expectation of a declining future, have tended not to exhibit such things, right?
1: Okay, for the uh, first question, which is on uh, interventions, I think what people should also realise is that uh, the bigger effect on the income distribution over time and on job losses over time has actually been technological change rather than globalisation. A very simple example, so the United States produces about the same amount of steel today as it did 50 years ago, just needs a tenth the number of workers essentially, the bigger displacements actually come from uh, technological progress rather than from trade, and regardless of what we do with globalization, the technological progress will have uh, will have its effect. But given that it's pointing to technological progress as the bigger culprit, um, and that's something we need to address, that really need- means that we have to think about how we're actually educating our uh, our uh, like sound like a platitude, how we educate our children, um, because in many cases, like, say a 55-year-old gets displaced from a uh, low-skilled job, like a steel job, there's, chances are you're not going to be able to do much productive with them to get them into uh, some other uh, productive uh, position, uh, Some because uh, um, some people might have the skills that are demanded by other firms, but many don't. I kind of noticed when I was looking through old labour market statistics for Australia, when the steel workers lost their jobs, essentially what you found was that there was a big spike in uh, old men being unemployed, right? Uh, Is Woolworths going to hire a grouchy old steel worker? No, right? Interestingly, there wasn't a big spike in old women unemployed. Woolworths is probably happier hiring some people who actually had uh, skills that were perhaps a bit more customer-friendly, but it kind of points to. But the key thing it points to is actually hanging
2: out with the wrong steelworkers. Well. That's probably <laughs>
1: probably right. Um, but 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 it points to, it's really about the it's it's the subsequent generations that you really have to pay attention to as well, because they need to be trained in a way that they can acquire skills that modern business enterprise actually wants. And for those where it might be a little bit too, where this is not necessarily practical, there presumably has to be some sort of compensation uh, targeted. Uh, uh, income adjustment schemes, so a welfare scheme to, to ease their burden. Um, so a combination of really rethinking our education system and um, and a nice ta- and a targeted welfare system, I think, is about the best we can uh, manage. And I think if the population can see that at least subsequent generations are prepared for the changes, they'll be less unhappy than if they think their kids are going to go down the same sinkhole. Um, in terms of um, put it right down here, what does the chart look like? Actually, yeah. I did calculations of this for my uh, MBA students when I was in Chicago a long time ago. It um, wasn't that long ago. And essentially I was looking and said, well, if current economic growth in individual countries uh, persisted at the same rate in the next 20 years as it did in the prior 20 years, what would happen to the world income distribution? Also assuming that within a country the income distribution didn't pull apart further, which is a strong assumption, And what you still find is that the big growth in uh, India and China is still driving large increases in the middle of the world income distribution, but gradually pushing these people further up. The Indians and Chinese middle class get pushed further up the income distribution. Um, There's actually a growth of some very poor people, because some uh, poor uh, countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, are doing really badly. However. One logical thing is that as uh, China and India gets richer, eventually their wages begin to rise more rapidly too. They haven't really reached that inflection point where the wages begin to shoot up much more quickly. But as they do, you'll actually find, well, China's no longer the cheap country for producing things. They'll actually have to find some other country which is cheap to move those textile and footwear plants. And so maybe they'll help redevelop uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Indonesia, and so this can actually push up further here. The news I don't think is brilliant for um, low- to middle-income owners in, uh, uh, in the developed world. This thing still remains relatively poor. What looks really fantastic if you're there is that this thing really shoots up, right? Some fat, more and more really fabulously wealthy people, in part driven by the extreme income inequality in some of the poor countries that are currently growing extremely rapidly. So, yeah, the chart... Morphs it broadly the same, but it's kind of shifting a little to the right, and possibly a little bit upwards towards the bottom. Um. Okay, um, United Nations. Well, my fir- my first reaction was that just sounded like Trumpist nonsense. Uh, but broadly speaking, I don't think the UN is a terribly effective organisation. Um, in terms of interfering in other countries' politics, it seems to make all these pronouncements, says things about how we should treat our refugees, for example, and uh, how much does Peter Dutton listen to that. Uh, I'll let you to be the judge of that. Um, as for the, uh, the question on racism, um, and uh, I think the big problem is, is that when you have an ignorant racist buffoon as president is that lots of people feel that they also have the licence to spout the same rubbish... And so, essentially, I think a lot of these beliefs have actually been out there before. It's just that uh, having a person like that as president means people say, well, now I can say what I like. Uh, However, I do think there's potentially a negative impact of having people say what they like because I actually don't think that uh, that sort of speech is, uh, is, is completely innocuous in terms of the beliefs that others have. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's actually been some general coarsening of beliefs and not just a coarsening of statements.
0: I think, um, again, you know, you can probably uh, find uh, a social scientist working on this, and I think we'll find one. I was just thinking, what do we do our panels on uh, next year? The second half of next year we'll be back with another series, and we will have one on nationalism and xenophobia, and I'll bring in some social scientists that work on this. And I think in general... Um, The aim of this is to to kind of have a chance, uh, give a chance to kind of academics at Sydney Uni who work on similar things, but from different disciplinary perspectives to get together and have discussions to have you join in. Um, So uh, in that context, I just want to add that if you're um, interested in doing a history course on... Uh, international institutions, we have those, you'd find out the UN is not an unelected body because it's actually made up of nation states and if you have democracy in your nation state, you're going to get some kind of representation through that line and we have a whole history about how it's the product of nation states. So, um, <laughs> But I will have a prize I think, and a competition and a prize for the, um, some of the themes for next year. Look out on the website. We'll send out emails to people who have signed up for these events and you'll get to either nominate a topic or vote for one but nationalism and xenophobia will be there. In general what I've learnt tonight is that I wish I'd studied economics because I think you know one of the things as I said before one of you know what we learn from each other is that the expertise we have provides um, uh, is a useful guide to thinking about the present and data is one and, and um, being able to ask these questions and provide really you know, nuanced answers through the use of information um, and bringing it all together but also thinking about in our case I think we showed how perceptions are as important and historians and uh, social scientists and human- humanities people are also very good at looking at those sorts of dimensions of the problems of the present. So thank you very much for being with us. Stick around for next year.